Hello and welcome to this week's episode. This is going to be a discussion of Michael Haneke's film, The White Ribbon, which won the Palme d'Or in 2009. It's a fascinating but very complex film to break down and understand from a screenwriting perspective, so luckily I had a great guest with me this week. Brian Donegan was head of screenwriting at the London Film School for 12 years. He's a very accomplished writer and is currently promoting his new book, Screenwriting is Filmmaking, which I highly recommend, and I've included a link to it in the episode description if you'd like to find out more. Through this episode, you'll get a chance to hear Brian's approach to screenwriting and film in general, and hopefully that will leave you keen to find out more by reading the book. I've divided this episode up into two sections. Firstly, you have the discussion of the white ribbon, the film. Then following that, you have Brian's tips and advice for screenwriters and reflections on the material he put into the book. And if you'd like to listen to just that part first, you can skip ahead to approximately one hour and 13 minutes into the recording, and you should be able to find it. Thanks again for supporting the show and continuing to listen. If you are a regular listener, I do need your help with the Apple Store and iTunes. If you do have time, just a minute or two to leave a five-star review and write a few comments there. That would really help me out. Don't forget, you can also follow our Instagram account to get the latest news and updates about all of the coming episodes. So there's going to be a full introduction to Brian himself and the topic we're going to discuss. So without further ado, let's get on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and this week I'm joined by a very special guest. Brian Dunnigan is a writer and filmmaker and author of the new book, Screenwriting is Filmmaking. He was also head of screenwriting at the London Film School for 12 years. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me. And what will we be discussing today? The script in the film for The White Ribbon by Michael Haneke. Uh, Michael Haneke wrote the script and he directed it. As the title of my book is Screenwriting is Filmmaking, one of the things we'll talk about perhaps will be the, the borders between writing and filmmaking and why I think understanding how film creates meaning could make you a better screenwriter, you know, hence the title of the book. It might be worth saying that at the same time, uh, although Haneke wrote the script, he had input from Jean-Claude Carrier, who is a famous and, and highly achieved European screenwriter in his own right. And I might say something about that as well. The White Ribbon is set in a Protestant town in Germany in the build-up to World War I. It is a very contemplative film. It won the Palme d'Or the year of its release. I think the line that sums up very much what the White Ribbon might be about comes in the intro, which is from the narrator who is the teacher in the village school. And he explains, I think I must tell of the strange events that occurred in our village. They could perhaps clarify some things that happened in this country. And again, he doesn't offer any specific answers, but he is suggesting very much from the beginning that as an audience we're meant to pay attention to the strange events and what the meanings might be behind those. Well, I think that's the case, that clearly there are strange events, although the events are not so strange. It's, a, it's strange, really, that he's chosen the word strange. I mean, they're, they're frightening, they're horrifying, 
they're terrifying, and it's almost too obvious who's behind them. So I think the screenplay and the film is quite interesting. It's not quite what it appears to be. And amongst the strange events are the account that the narrator, the school teacher, gives of what happened in the village and what we actually see. In fact, that's one of the aesthetic tensions. It's part of the structure and the meaning of the piece that what the narrative voice is telling us is not always exactly what we see. And the fact that the narrator, the person that we should form an intimate bond with and will guide us through the story, himself is an uncertain voice. He's an unreliable narrator. He wasn't there at all the events that he's describing. So immediately we are unsettled. What should be the structural centre of the film is itself unstable and makes us feel anxious, which is exactly what Michael Haneke wants us to feel. He sees his role as someone who wants to unsettle his audience. He wants them to think as well as feel. He wants them to ask questions of the material as much as find answers in the story itself. It's interesting, this whole concept of, we're familiar with unreliable narrators, but in The White Ribbon in particular, we never even learn the name of the teacher. It's not specifically mentioned. And so that sense of having a bond with the narrator, usually a narrator is the person who invites you into the story in a welcoming way. It's a person you're meant to trust and and follow along with, but he does keep us at a distance in that sense. One thing I noticed during my rewatch of the film as well is we never actually see a scene with him teaching the children, which presumably would be not only a prominent part of his life, but also could help explain some of these strange events that he claims are occurring. He obviously spends a lot of time with the children and therefore knows the family lives of a lot of the people in the village, and he keeps that part secret from us as well. I think this is a deliberate part of the construction. I think that's the case. But it's a deliberate part of the construction that that Haneke and his co-writer Carrier have decided upon to keep us at a distance. And the whole point of keeping us at a distance and not over-identifying with the characters, as you would in a Hollywood movie, is to force us to think about the different possibilities and the uncertainty of knowledge. I mean, this is one of the themes that runs through all of Haneke's work, and particularly in this film. How do we know that what we're looking at is the truth? Or we actually know that it's only part of the truth, it's only a fragment of the truth, and that other people have a different angle and a different handle on things, which is also what makes us anxious. You know, we're, we're kind of ignorant, really, but we have to act on the basis of our ignorance, And these actions often lead to unintended consequences, which we then have to deal with. And a lot of stories, particularly the way in which Hanukkah constructs his stories, uh, are of this nature. And we often don't see critical actions, but we see the consequences of these actions. This is part of Hanukkah's film style, drawing on the history of modernist filmmaking and literature that, that has inspired him. And the unreliable narrator is part of his repertoire of distancing effects mm-hmm. that provoke an audience into questioning what they're seeing and what they're hearing and trying to figure out for themselves what is going on. So to make the audience a kind of detective in their own right, 
there's more I can say about the narrator. I think, you know, he is quite central. He is the closest the film has to a protagonist. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, he isn't a fully rounded character. What we've been saying about not seeing him on his own, we very rarely see any of the other characters on their own. And that's often how we get backstage and get to know a character. We get to know their backstory. We get to see what they won't reveal in public or to other people. And that will fill them out. And that's what the screenwriting books tell us we should be doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, when we don't get that, then we are not getting access to the characters in the same way that we would in a genre movie or a Hollywood movie. But this is quite deliberate. And this is an option that screenwriters have in their storytelling. What he's going for here is something that he's taken from earlier forms of modernist cinema, particularly the Italian cinema of the late 40s and early 50s that was known as the neorealist cinema, where they similarly did not attempt to enter or offer a psychological explanation for their characters. We encounter characters in neorealist films and in Hanukkah films and in many modernist films in the same way we encounter people in our modern urban environment partially, fragmentary, glancingly. We don't get to get into their their sitting rooms to see what they're really thinking going on, what they're saying to their wife. We have to make up our idea of who they are from the outside as observers. And this is one of the deliberate, intentional ways in which Hanukkah and Carrie are going about constructing this particular story because they want you to have that experience, uh, which is closer, they think, to a lived experience, a real authentic experience, which is how unknowable reality actually is and other people are. And the, the, the kind of sense of completion that you get in a conventional mainstream drama on television or, or in Hollywood is somehow obscuring something more interesting, something more live, something more real. It's a kind of entertainment. It's a kind of lie. He actually says, you know, Hollywood movies and lies and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's trying to shake us up, wake us up, get us to look again at reality and and uh, other people and to live with not knowing. You know, that's that's the thing about questions rather than answers. To live in the in the in the not knowing space. It's a difficult place to be, but it's a more authentic place to be. And that's deliberately what he's trying to, the experience he's trying to give you. When we've been breaking down the screenplays on the podcast before, we've either gone linearly through the story or we've chosen to look at it in terms of specific categories of some of the fundamentals that make up a screenplay, character, dialogue, story, plot, and themes. And I think seeing as we're talking about the narrator anyway, character would be the perfect place to start here. We have a village with a strict hierarchy. It's alluded to that the village is very much run by the pastor, the baron, and the steward. There's a fantastic shot, actually, at the the baron's party where they're essentially standing on the steps outside the baron's mansion, literally on a pyramid above the, the masses assembled below who have been harvesting the crops. And so there, there is a strict hierarchy within it. And then the characters themselves all play roles based on perhaps in a sense that goes back to a pre-individualistic uh, society where your your role in the village was determined by your class, by your gender, by your age. So we don't 
necessarily get so much more about many of the characters except those key categories, and then we watch how they interact with each other. Through that method, it allows the parable of pre-war Germany to be told a little better. Absolutely. We're looking at village life. We're looking at the hierarchy in village life. And I think that's what the first section of the film is about, is introducing us to the characters, to the uh, the number of characters. And it's what makes it difficult to, to catch in, in one go. But there is an underlying structure which we could talk about. And absolutely, though, I, I would have to say I do think there is a protagonist, and that that is the school teacher. He's not our usual protagonist, uh, but he is the moral center of the film. Mm-hmm. And you know what he has to say, his, his story, his narration, his voiceover narration uh, provides turning points in the movement of the story toward its inevitable conclusion. And there's a real sense of it building to some terrifying conclusion, which mm-hmm. in, in this case uh, is the outbreak of the First World War. And everything that we've seen earlier somehow, you know, is a preparation for that. We, we can go back to that. When you mention the, the figures in, in the village that we were introduced to at the beginning, they're all men. They're all men with power within the family or within the village. It's a hierarchical world of power. And this power is exercised in a way that makes people fearful. One of the themes is beginning to emerge, threat, fear. And power is exercised with the threat of violence and then actual violence. So, you know, at first we think this is a kind of idyllic village. It could be. But very Mm -hmm. quickly we're disabused of this notion and we're brought to understand that there are power games going on here and there is something quite disturbing going on below the surface. And it's the probing into the, the different layers of what is making us anxious and what is fearful about this world that we're being taken into that becomes the unraveling structure, the movement of the film itself. And Haneke, one of his other great loves is music. And in my book, uh, Screenwriting is Filmmaking, I also talk about the other arts, the way in which the other arts have informed filmmaking, because film is you know, a much later art than painting and dance and so on. And clearly music is one of the, the models for many filmmakers because music, mm-hmm. like the experience of watching a film, is a visceral experience. It really hits you in the gut when you're watching a film and the, the way in which the cuts uh, operate and the rhythm of the film is like music. And someone like Hanukkah, who loves music, is knowledgeable about music, shapes his scripts with a musical idea in mind. And if you look at the film, you break it down, there's four movements and the movements of the film as it takes us deeper and deeper into the fearful world of the village is broken by the narrative voice breaking in and and telling us that, hey, it was a quiet spring. It was a beautiful winter. The snow fell. Mm-hmm. And this is another thing about the the narrative voice and the role of the narrator and the teacher instructing all this. He He brings us back to, hey, you know, everything's okay. But that's very disturbing in itself. This tension between what the narrator is saying and what we're seeing is not only he didn't see many of the things he's talking about, but he's talking about them in a way that feels very odd in that these are terrible things that are happening and he's treating them very lightly Mm -hmm. and dispassionately. 
So it makes you wonder about this narrator, given that he's also narrating from a point 30 years after the Second World War, supposedly, and all the horrors of the 20th century. And yet he's speaking like this is a little fairy tale, which of course it's not. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the great tensions at the heart of this. So there is structure, there is a protagonist, but we are distanced in a way that we wouldn't be in a conventional film. And that includes all the people that you mention. They're generic character types rather than fully fledged articulated characters that we might meet in a John Ford movie, for example, Mm -hmm. or in a Clint Eastwood movie. They are types, rather. There is the Baron, there is the Steward, and they're actually called that as well most of the time. There is the Pastor, and that distances us from them as well. Mm-hmm. So along with the unreliable narrator and the generic roles of the main characters in the village, we are at one remove. And we're at one remove from the children as well, who of course are our main movers in the drama. We don't really get to know these children, and quite deliberately so. Uh, I read uh, an interview with Jean-Claude Carrier, who was brought in to doctor the script and to rework the script, which incidentally was four and a half hours long. It was a mini-series, and that's one of the reasons for the problem with the structure that some people might have. And the wider cast is easier in a uh, longer format of dramatic television. Yes, if you break it down and you're you're watching an hour, you can absorb, and then you've got a week to think about it, and then you can watch another hour and so on. But to take all this on board and to try and talk about it and to throw a net around it, what Carrie did was conflate a number of scenes and bring things together and reduce it from four and a half hours to about two and a half hours. And one of the things he did was make it less obvious that the children were behind many of the terrible events. Although he says that, and I'm not sure if that's the case. I'm not sure, you know, a lot of people watching it would quite early on begin to think, well, you know, the way the children are introduced, like the children of the damned, you know, collectively outside the window, like in a horror movie, Mm -hmm. we suspect them from the get-go. It seems almost obvious. But Mm -hmm. he thinks, as the writer, that he's toned down the obviousness of the children's involvement, but it's still there. So imagine what the original script must have been like. It, It makes it more questionable. However, visually, especially the casting, the children who are selected through a long casting process as well, visually on screen, it has that effect of making us suspect them a bit earlier on, I think, as well. And the the iconic image of Martin uh, that is adorning all the posters for the White Ribbon, especially the, the look in his face, it tells you everything you need to know. You can still catch looks and glances in a screenplay. You can actually mm-hmm. write them up. Down. So, for example, that scene, that, that kind of terrifying scene by the, the lake where Ziggy is playing his pitch-perfect whistle and the, the lower orders, the steward's children, can't get their homemade whistles to work or they only work partially. They exchange a look before the older one grabs Ziggy and, and tries to wrestle his whistle away before throwing him viciously into the pond where he he might drown. But the beginning of this action is a look between them, and I'm sure that would be in the script. It's absolutely necessary, yeah. Yeah. Going back to the idea of a protagonist, to clarify perhaps what many screenwriters who are familiar with the more Hollywood model would know about protagonists, and then our version of the protagonist in The White Ribbon is that 
yes, the teacher is a protagonist in the sense that we very much know what his goals are. His intention to court and marry Eva is a very clear goal, and it seems to explain a lot of where his attention lies during the time that the story passes as well, is because he's infatuated with this young lady. But it doesn't have that climactic conclusion when they are finally betrothed. He's taking advantage of the fact the war has broken out, and so this looming disaster, which we are, as an audience, are very familiar with and very aware what is at stake with the outbreak of the First World War. It's not a happy moment, the fact that the protagonist achieves their goal. So in that sense, it, it, we're not tied to the protagonist's journey as you might be in a more traditional screenplay. No, I think that's the case. And again, I would go back to the the roots of um, Haneke's film style. You know, his style is not original. He was inspired by the great modernist masters like Antonioni and Bergman and Bresson, particularly, and they themselves shaped by the modernist rebellion against romantic and classical art. The modernist moment was one in which, you know, the early 20th century, with everything speeding up and the modern world breaking out on the back of industrial revolutions and, and machines, the old ways of representing human beings and, and human reality was breaking down. So hence the, you know, the, the shimmering capture of light and the impressionists and the, and eventually Picasso breaking everything down into angles and, and the surrealists erupting out of Freud's discovery of the unconscious. I mean, the early 20th century was a, a real shakedown of what seemed to be the apparent nature of the world and, and reality and something we've never really recovered from. Cinema had its modernist moment right from the get-go. It erupted into flashbacks and, and powerful imagery, uh, but it very quickly settled down. And when D.W. Griffiths came along and evolved the, what became the language of cinema, it was very much based on the well-made play, based itself on Aristotelian principles that had been written down and become a bit stultified in the, in the 16th century, and also the 19th century novel. You know, these are the two sources, really, of, of the Hollywood style of filmmaking that became dominant in the world. And it was the reaction to that in various European movements like Expressionism and Poetic Realism, as it was called, and, and the Italian cinema of the late 40s and early 50s, where they, they challenged, you know, inspired by modernist ideas about how you might want to represent human action and reality in, in a different way. And Haneke draws heavily on these sources. I mean, when he cites his 10 favourite films in the Sight and Sound poll in 2002, amongst them is uh, Rossellini's film, Germany Year Zero, for example. And it's, you know, it's one of the, the classic uh, neorealist films from the early 50s. And it has a child, again, a child corrupted by the world he lives in. And, and this was something that, that he gets from uh, that period too, the idea in neorealist cinema where the environment and the culture and the society can trap you and define you and shape you in a way that American cinema would not recognize. And American cinema, and this gets back to the protagonist, anyone with enough strength, inspiration and talent could become president, right? So anyone with enough strength and will and focus and objectives 
can get to where they want. You know, have a look at the self-help books in American bookshops. You know, uh, they're all about just going for it and doing it. And the optimism about the possibility of success, which for Europeans who lived through the nightmare of the 20th century, the death camps and collectivization and uh, the murder of 60 million other Europeans, we don't quite have that same optimistic outlook. And so, you know, at the heart of the modernist project is the idea that humans are actually complicated, essentially quite cruel and violent uh, if they don't get what they want. And they don't actually know what they want. So this whole idea of a protagonist with a clear-cut objective is a kind of fantasy. Most of the time, most of us don't have clear-cut goals and they're conflicted by all kinds of other objectives. And the objectives themselves conceal things that we really want or need and we're not able to articulate. And so a film like The White Ribbon is drawing on that deep pool, that philosophical background, that understanding, that idea that humans don't really know what they want. Therefore, the character of the protagonist in in The White Ribbon, the fact that his objective is not fulfilled or the film doesn't seem to be all that interested in the fulfillment of his objective uh, or indeed the other objective you might have, which is to find out who's behind the terror and the awful things that are going on in the village. That seems to peter out too. So what's that about? We can maybe come back to that. Would you say that this approach is an understanding of the rules that are given to screenwriters of having a protagonist and a selective decision to go against those rules? Or is it more of a completely different approach from the ground up to character and storytelling? Well, certainly someone like Hanukkah is perfectly well aware of the Aristotelian principles. He's someone that is interesting to study because he himself is an intellectual and is well studied. You know, he he did courses in philosophy and psychology and he worked in the theatre. He was in television and he was a script editor long before he ever made something. You know, he was into his 40s before he made his first feature film. So he is a student of dramaturgy and he's chosen to follow a kind of dramaturgical path that was fashionable in the 50s and 60s and kind of petered out in the 70s. So in a way, he's anachronistic in the sense that he's bringing the past into the present and reworking it for his own ends. But also finding new stories to tell, finding new places for us to look. There is a sense in The White Ribbon that it's very much unique in the decade that it was released, in in a way. A standout example of what else can be done. Certainly, It is trying to do something that mainstream cinema is not doing. But what do you think that is? I think one of the most interesting things about it is simply how how it's able to draw us into a detective story in the sense that uh, other stories that might be very clearly defined about a mystery that needs to be resolved and it's it's very clear-cut, very Agatha Christie style, but, you know, twists and turns and all of that. This one, it draws you in without placing the clues in the same manner. It it places its clues very carefully. It might leave an answer hanging and then offer some alternative information which seems to contradict it. And and so then you, you're constantly in this state of flux, wondering when you're going to figure it out and when the resolution is going to come. And at the same time, it's also saying, perhaps 
the resolution isn't coming. You're constantly wondering whether the carpet's going to be swept out from under you. So it's to me, that's very interesting, that whole method whereby, again, it's not entirely just based around will this character get what they want by the end. In fact, no one sees what's coming at all. And it's not something that they need to react to. We don't see the war years at all either. It's just, that's what we're left with at the end. Asking oneself, why would you make a film in this way? Why this particular style? Why would you move away from uh, a character with a defined objective and a clear plot and a resolution and catharsis? I mean, that's what most people want and that's what most people enjoy and that's what we're used to seeing and hearing and reading. And indeed, those who criticise this film find the lack of catharsis and the lack of final resolution, they find that a weakness in the film. Mm -hmm. The idea that this is somehow an explanation of of the rise of fascism in Germany, for example, which uh, Hanukkah resists anyway, they find that reductive and simplistic and and, and in itself not believable. So, you know, there is a way of criticizing this film from the point of view of not giving an audience or most audiences what they want. On the other hand, then, you have to ask, why make it in this way? And I would suggest that he's making it in this way for the same reason Antonioni made La Ventura or L'Eclisse, which is one of the films on his top 10 list as well, which is he's more interested in theme than in telling a coherent, cohesive story that makes absolute sense. He's more interested in the spaces in between. That's where the darkness is. And that's where real reality is. And that's what it's about. It's about death. It's about the void. It's about what cannot be expressed in words. It's about the background to all our lives that we will never get to the bottom of. We will never figure out. And ultimately, you know, the film ends in what is going to be the mass death of millions and millions of people, which is only a precursor to another bloodletting of incredible violence and incredible death and the Holocaust. So this is another theme that Hanukkah picks up from his reading of the kind of social criticism that was being worked up in the 30s and 40s in Germany, the Frankfurt School. Uh, you know, One of his authors is Adorno, and Adorno is a great critic of the Enlightenment. He sees the Enlightenment as having been betrayed and the, the rise of reasoning into the centre of our culture has led to the exaggerated irrationality of reason through getting the trains to run on time, you know, to take people to the death camps. That, you know, ultimately, one of his inspirations for this film, apparently, was seeing a documentary about Adolf Eichmann, who was described as, as a bureaucrat just doing his work. So this, in a way, is one of the deep themes of this film, really, and of many of his other films as well. Although this is the only one he's set in a historical period, there is still that sense that uh, we think ourselves to be reasonable people, but our reason has run away with us. The, the reasonable fathers in this film, I think they would think themselves to be rational creatures. Uh, but we can see what uh, the extremity of their rationality without any human feeling without any compassion, without any sense of being, of what it is to be a human being, 
what happens. You know, this is Adorno's criticism of the Enlightenment turning into scientism and the instrumentalizing of knowledge and knowledge and power being used to crush human beings and to crush human feelings. And this is one of the themes in all of his films about contemporary society uh, that Hanukkah dramatizes. But it's clearly here too. Even though this is an historical period, there's still that same sense. In this case, it's the Protestant church in the way in which their ideas of divinity were secularized in the shape of father figures like the Kaiser and then the pastor and the, and the baron and the pater familias, the head of the, the household. This is an outcome that has its roots in, in the great cultural upheavals of the 18th and 19th century and has shaped human and distorted the human, taken the human away from the possibility of freedom and autonomy and proper happiness and, and proper relationship with each other and with oneself. I think with character, again, one of the things that is clearer once we start looking into the, the later period of history, which is under more scrutiny, that sense of the putting on of a uniform and how that can change people, how they can act in accordance with a role that they believe is prescribed to them, only following orders, that kind of sense of it. The fact that these characters are just given their title that belongs to them as part of that society. The pastor is always seen in religious attire. The baron dressed in elegant uh, opulence, a style of dress that is inaccessible to everyone else in the village. The doctor as well, transformed by their role and their power in society. Or on the other side, the women and children in particular who are resisting that in ways that they they find possible in secrecy often as well for sure that you know that is another theme that, that shapes the the structure and the characterization is this and it's something that you find in Hanukkah's earlier films too although they're set in a contemporary world they also locate the source of human unhappiness in the structures of the family which are hierarchical and uh, repressive, particularly the bourgeois family, that's his study, you know, middle class families, that's where he sees the roots of all evil, really. Mm. And in this sense, he's also kind of echoing a Scottish psychoanalyst who was popular in the 60s called R.D. Lang. He was one of a number of uh, psychiatrists who were known as anti-psychiatrists, who took issue with uh, the repressive rules and regimes of, of mental hospitals and set up their own free spaces where people could work through their neuroses and their psychoses. For Hanukkah, too, uh, the family is a, a repressive institution. And the rules and regulations within the family, they, they take from the wider society. And again, taking from another of those Frankfurt critical sociologists, Marcuse, you know, it's a one-dimensional society that we, we think we're free, but actually our desires are shaped constantly from the ground up. Even though we laugh at the ad adverts, at the same time as we buy, you know, the sneakers and the headphones that, you know, we're being seduced into buying, mm. the theme of the oppressiveness of, of rules and regulations and the way in which, also, they might give us permission not to be fully human but simply to follow orders. Yes, that clearly is one of the themes in in this film. I think there's one character I'd like to look at under a microscope in a way, and that's the character of the midwife. The midwife is a character who is given 
enough screen time and the ability through the screenplay to to speak her mind at specific points when she's pushed to her absolute limits. And she's very much struggling in the fact that she's had a child who has a severe learning disability. She has no husband and now lives with the doctor and is trapped within the horrible events that are going on within that household as well. The film notably opens with the doctor being the one who is first attacked by the mysterious forces in the village, the the wire that is set out outside his property that brings his horse down and he breaks his collarbone and ends up in the hospital for, for two months. That incident on reflection, seeing more of the film, is almost just buying time for the the midwife and the children that live in that household away from the doctor. It's it's almost granting them a little bit of freedom, a little bit of space without him. And we do see a few of their private moments and the utter abuse that the doctor is giving to the midwife. So I would just like to look at her as a, a character, perhaps an exemplary character of who is written into this screenplay and why she's there and what she can tell us. The women and the children are the ones who suffer the violence and the abuse in this world. They are they are the ones without power. They are the ones that the men take out, you know, whatever it is. Why are they doing this? Actually, one of the many questions that just just sit there. And why are we looking at, at men who simply are, are violent and abusive? The only man that isn't is a school teacher, but he seems to be too good to be true. You know, we don't see him on his own, as you said. He seems to have no neuroses. He seems to have no internal conflicts. He seems too modern in a way. And that is one of the tensions in the film, I think. The midwife is there thematically and structurally to tease out just how terrifying and terrifyingly awful the actions and behavior and character of the doctor is, you know. So that that's one of the reasons that she's there. But she is one of the women in the film, along with the Baroness, who push back mm-hmm. uh, and who articulate the anger, perhaps, of the audience uh, uh, at what they're witnessing. And finally, though, she and the doctor somehow become the scapegoats. We we talked about the ending, how it seems to peter out rather than offer a catharsis. And the, the two main plot lines, the mystery of who's doing the killing and the pursuit of, of, of his wife. Well, his, his pursuit of, of Eva uh, is not particularly, uh, there's no tension around it much at all. You know, there's no real big stakes. You kind of feel he's going to get there. We don't really care about that so much. We care more about the mystery, perhaps. But do the writers and the filmmakers care about that? as well. I think they care about other things, other things I've been talking about, like like the darkness and the death and the void and not knowing and how that penetrates into our being and how that affects us. And I think, you know, they're more interested in the in the structures as well that give rise to this terrible violence and hatred and self hatred. Uh, but in the respect of the plot line where the mystery peters out, it does have a kind of conclusion, which is the doctor and the midwife who disappear and we never see them again. They're only mentioned in the the narrator's you know, account of what happened. 
they become the scapegoats. Yes. He says, you know, the, the village then gossip and they, they start tell their own stories. They start to construct their own story. Yeah, they create multiple explanations, which are beautifully composed with this shot of the church in the background, again, representing that hierarchy. And we see the church from, from different angles and distances as he explains all the gossip that's going on in the village and the ideas that people have about was Carly damaged because the midwife had tried to abort him and, and things like this. And and the way that these rumors kind of get out of control, but also intrigue us as an audience as we're at that stage where we're still looking for answers as well. Absolutely. Uh, uh, but you were asking about the midwife and the role of the midwife. Mm. And, you know, in terms of the, the meaning of the piece, uh, in terms of her role structurally in the, in the script, uh, she's someone who provides some opposition and therefore some potential conflict and therefore some potential tension and interest as well as pushing the doctor to reveal himself in all his awfulness. And finally, of course, she becomes a scapegoat along with the doctor and gives us a way out uh, at the end in terms of the mystery of who's been causing all these things. But it also has, you know, it resonates on a meta level where it's pointing to the way in which the villagers like us are going to create their own story about what happened and that we will never finally know. We will never finally know who did what, finally understand. Mm -hmm. So that's something that, that she brings, as well as, you know, she carries along with particularly her son, the pain and the suffering, which the protagonist will not acknowledge and who will lightly trip along and marry his sweetheart and everything's hunky-dory. And what's that about? I could suggest possibly what it might be about, which is if you go back to one of Hanukkah's themes, which is his critique of bourgeois middle-class family life and its repressiveness and the consumerist culture that we live in, ultimately he's more concerned with his own pleasure than he is with the horror that's going on just outside of his, you know, his frame. And in a way, isn't that all of us? Aren't we all in denial about the clothes we wear and the sweatshops in the third world and what we're doing about climate change and what are we actually doing to help anyone other than get our new pair of sneakers? And so I think that may be partly the meaning of our dispassionate narrator, that whilst he suddenly gets vigorously interested in the possibility that the children are behind this, he just as quickly lets go of that. We hear no more of it. Exactly. And he's getting married and off he goes. And, he, and He's almost like someone who goes to a protest once and feels like he's done his part. Well, I, I went to a protest on climate change, or I, I went and said I, I was against this policy, and then it happened, so I'm done. He's confronted the pastor, he's spoken to the children, and then he's willing to wipe his hands clean of it, saying he, he did his bit. He, he tried to investigate and the mystery was impossible to resolve, even though we know, we feel that he's actually on the cusp of really discovering it. And the fact that he was able to try and talk some truth to power when he first talked to the pastor about it was, was admirable, at least, and has us on his side. And, you know, in that moment also is, I suppose, one of the, the few moments where there's a kind of echo of the conventional protagonist in a Hollywood movie. And conventionally in a Hollywood movie, the protagonist 
has got some kind of flaw, has got some kind of issue that needs to be kind of worked through before he will succeed or she will succeed. And that the interaction of the plot and the character is precisely about putting the protagonist under pressure and confronting them with their own weaknesses and their, their own flaws so that they can heal those and succeed. They, they need to kind of change in order to succeed. That's one of the basic dynamics of a, of a kind of standard Hollywood movie. And so they have to come to some realization of why they've not been getting what they wanted and why things are as they are before they can break through. Uh, so character change and character arc, you know, these are very central to conventional screenwriting books and to a mainstream cinema and mainstream dramas. In a modernist cinema and in this kind of cinema, where they resist many of the conventional tropes uh, of mainstream cinema, they also resist this idea of character change and character insight. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, an exchange in, in The Simpsons where Bart asks his dad one day, uh, you know, Dad, do you think people ever change? And Homer says, nah, I don't think people really change. No, not really. He says, well, wait a minute. Sometimes they do, but then they change back again almost immediately. <laughs> uh, and I think... Though, whilst none of the other characters go through some kind of arc or change, that's another resistance to our expectation, because we never really know them anyway. The, the school teacher at least has a moment where he is educated into understanding that maybe it's the children who's doing this. And, but there's no sense of one thinking about, you know, why they might be doing it or who might be behind, you know, the children. But at least... He comes to that point, you know, where he might change, but just like in the Homer Simpson story, he changes back again almost immediately and goes mm -hmm. off with the girl and forgets all about it. But the big thing, actually, before I forget about this narrator, again, reminding ourselves that he's narrating this from the point of view of, you know, 70s, 80s, like after the Second World War. What has he been through? What has he seen? What has he done? Was he in the administration of the death camps? Was he a soldier in the SS? Was he just a citizen on the site who just ignored the Jews being rounded up and disappearing from his area? He's lived in Germany through two world wars, through the Holocaust and beyond. What has he seen? What has he experienced? And there's no sense of that in his voiceover. So that's another unknown that hovers over the whole thing. And in a way, it might be you know, a stretch biographically, but Hanukkah is of the generation who woke up, you know, to discover that their parents or their grandparents were in the SS. You know, they weren't told about it. It was airbrushed out of the history books, you know. That German student generation of the 70s, some who took up left-wing terror, were amongst the student generation who just were appalled to discover what had actually happened in Germany during the 30s and 40s and how complicit so many of their uncles and aunts and kindly granddad was in yeah. that world. And so I suppose the school teacher is perhaps an exemplar of that kind of uncritical, unlived, in denial mm -hmm. idea. Perhaps as an answer to his initial question, does this tell us anything that might explain the later events that occur in Germany? The sense is almost that if people were willing to tolerate this, how much further do you have to step? I think Carly as a character is important there because he is representing what will later become a prominent Nazi ideology of 
the elimination of disabled people, which is something that goes entirely in accordance with Nazi ideology in terms of eugenics and things like that. There's little hints of it occurring in the village, little hints of this. But remember, eugenics were, I mean, I'm not sure if you if you're aware, but eugenics were very, was very popular everywhere. It's much older, yes, exactly. In America and in Britain. Yeah. In the 30s, people were definitely discussing how to improve the quality of the population. And it was a serious intellectual discussion. It only became unspeakable after the rise of the Nazis and the revelation about the death camps. But people were still talking about it up until the late 30s. So it wasn't a Nazi thing and it wasn't a German thing. And Haneke himself makes the point quite forcibly, that this is not a film about Germany. It's a film about what could happen anywhere. He said in one of the interviews I read with him that the repression of young people or any society where young people live in despair, where there's no hope, you know, you take the Arab world today. Uh, this is, this is the, the seedbed for great violence. You know, if you don't give people a life. And he said this film in its most general terms, is something. This can happen anywhere, really. He's a little disingenuous in that, in that you know, he comes from the German world. This is set in a German village. So it is another tension in the film. It's inviting and, these parallels. Yeah. Well, we, will, we can make that reading about mm -hmm. its relationship to what happened in Germany after the First World War. And we can also see how he's talking about something that could happen anywhere. So it is both particular and general, uh, and these kind of rub up against each other in terms of the, our experience of the film. But if you're going to take this point that is sometimes made that the film is anticipating what happens in Germany later, then I do pick up the point that the, some critics make that this is an oversimplified account of what happened in Germany. Because what you know was happening in 1920s Germany uh, that gave uh, the space for, for Hitler and the Nazis to rise was, was a whole complex of issues, not the least of which was the collapse of the economy and the, the utter humiliation that the reparations forced on the German people by the French and the British, impoverished them and humiliated them. Anti-Semitism, which became a huge mm. and major uh, issue for, for, you know, it, it was in the, in the papers and discussed in learned journals and, you know, the, the place of the Jew in German society, uh, you know, that was a big driver around the rise of, of national socialism. You know, they, mm -hmm. they, they tried to marry the, the two ideas of a, a national Germany. And uh, so it, it's complicated if you look at the rise of, of Hitler, if you look at Weimar Republic, it can't be just reduced to, you know, somehow the result of autocratic family uh, no, families, of course not. you know, pre-war um, uh, in German villages. But perhaps there's a suggestion that the seed is within the arrogance, within the belief that is inherent in German society there, that the superiority that will lead to a huge miscalculation in the First World War, which then is seen as a national humiliation from which the right wing and the left wing in Germany, but the right wing in particular, try to take advantage of, try to take advantage of the sense of people's feeling that Germany had been wronged by history and that it was a wrong to be righted. I mean, I've never seen anywhere Haneke saying that that's you know, what he thought he was, he was doing with the, the film. But what 
he will admit to, and what you can see in the film, is that any society that treats its children in the way in which this particular society that we're looking at in the film treats the children is going to have to suffer consequences. Mm-hmm. And undoubtedly, the childhood practices and the the role of the strong father and the importance of efficiency crushing out all human feeling, repressing all human feeling, had its part to play. But was it hugely different from what was going on in other European cultures? You know, the way in which men and, uh, you know, the patriarchy and so on. I mean, this is, you know, a German version of it, not German Protestant version of it. So, you know, I don't think you can say it's, there's a direct connection. Certainly, a world in which people are brutalized uh, and there is no hope is going to provide the seedbed to some kind of violent outbreak. And we see this in the film. And of course, with the First World War, it's the perfect, I guess. Is that the catharsis? I mean, many people look forward to war as a cleansing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Something that becomes impossible once the atomic bomb is in existence and no longer can, well, can war be done. Well, people have no idea of, of what an industrial war mm-hmm. is going to look like. You know, uh, hitherto, the, the previous wars had still been fought on horseback in Canada. Yeah, you know, a few yeah we see the, the early footage of 1914 where cavalry is charging in and, and obviously by the time the winter sets in, the trenches are dug. There's no major movement of nobody more had than any a mile ever that, again. Well, nobody really, I mean, some people obviously did, but most people had no idea just what a carnage it would be. Many thought it would be over in a few months and you know, there'd be a few thousand deaths. It was millions upon millions and it was a catastrophe for not only Germany but for European civilization. You have to remember also that, that Germany was regarded as, as one of the great centres of European civilization. It was the country that had produced Beethoven and Goethe and Schiller and you know all the great philosophers and poets and, and artists. Berlin was preeminent, really, probably more than, than even Paris or London at that point. So it was a shock to the system. And this touches on one of, again, Hanukkah's themes that run through his earlier films, which is the consequence of these terrible wars and, 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 and the Holocaust and, and all the rest of it in the 20th century was a kind of stripping out of the European sensibility that that there is something desperately empty and lost in European culture. And maybe, you know, this gets back to the contrast between American and European cinema. But the the wandering figures in Antonioni films, you know, where there isn't a plot, where there seems to be an objective and then they forget about it and we're just lost and wandering. You know, that's that's at the core uh, of what Hanukkah's going on about too. There is something lost, there is something absent, there is something critically important to human beings that's missing in our lives. And it's in this film, too. It's dramatised in this particular way. But, you know, that lies at the heart of his enterprise, I think. That's a fascinating point. I would like to take a look at dialogue now, in particular techniques used throughout the screenplay. Of course, the narrator's lines are dialogue. And we've talked a lot about him. So how about we talk about dialogue in the scenes and as a form of characterization? 
I mean, dialogue, of course, is conventionally used to characterize, which is here. You know, the baron will, will speak with the authority of someone in his position. The pastor will be, you know, trotting out quotes from the Bible and be speaking a kind of, you know, religious language. And so, you know, the dialogue characterizes, that's, that's quite conventional. I think one of the ways in which, though, Hanukkah uses dialogue particularly is in the way in which dialogue is shaped in terms of questions and answers. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something he uses to great effect. If you think of some of the really powerful scenes in this film, uh, like that wonderful scene where Annie and Rudy, the children of the doctor, discuss death, and Rudy is just, you know, encountering death for the first time, and he asks, you know, what death is, and then he asks, well, is that what happened to, to mummy? Mm-hmm. She, she's not traveling, so obviously he's been told that she's traveling, no? And will daddy die? Will you die? Then will I die? And will I die? And it's such a powerful moment, and it's a moment that every human being goes through at an age at which it's too young to remember, but the adults around the children, the adult who has that conversation, or the elder sibling in this case, they are present there, and it, it is a fundamental moment in its part of being human, is the recognition of one's own mortality. Such a powerful thing to include on screen, just as an observer and being kept in that room and listening to that conversation unfold. It's another theme that's kind of woven into the, the rich complex of themes in this film, which is rebellion. Insofar as the, the children and the women, but particularly the children, because we we get to watch them and, and feel them and experience them and worry about what they're doing. The way in which they are so badly treated, so cruelly treated, their acts of revenge are acts of rebellion. And rebellion is connected to freedom. And the caged birds, you know, the image of the caged bird in the pastor's office is precisely that. These children are caged, they're trapped, and they want to fly free. And rebellion is one way to force your freedom against your oppressors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that moment at the end of the, the scene where Rudy is asking about death, where he sweeps his bowl off the table and it smashes on the ground, and, you know, this is an, ex- an example of the way in which Hanukkah uses sound as well. The juxtaposition of image and sound, which screenwriters can use. Screenwriters are often, you know, unaware of just how powerful sound can be. And, you know, going back to screenwriting as filmmaking, uh, the juxtaposition of image and sound and the use of sound. For example, one of Hanukkah's signature techniques is uh, not to show you the violence, but we hear the violence, so mm-hmm. that long take. Such as the caning. Of, the caning, yes. Yeah. Um, and we just hold on the door and we wait and we hear, we hear the cries. And the cries of uh, Carrie after he's been tortured and abused. You know, these are very, very powerful. And Hanukkah is very clear that, that sound carries emotion in ways that just showing something doesn't. It's a very powerful way of carrying the emotion. It provokes both the reaction and memory. Almost instinctively, we are reminded of feelings and sensations just by certain sounds. 
Absolutely, and and the the sounds though are in in this film are very carefully chosen. I think, you know, it's a village set in the countryside, and we hear birdsong over a number of scenes, particularly the opening, which is quite violent, and yet the birds are merely whistling away, just like the teacher is merely pursuing his love life whilst all this horror is going on all around him. So the, there's that connection, but there's also the theme about nature not caring about the human. You know, these beautiful shots of empty landscapes in the village without humans. Would the world be a better place without all this cruelty and without humans on it? That's kind of... And I was thinking the other day there also the, the contrast between the, the birdsong and what we associate birdsong with, with a pleasant nature. But, you know, that's a human construction too. Other people see, like David Lynch, you know, how horrific nature can be and, and, you know, bloody and tooth and claw and the way we've romanticized and created a nature that suits us. But it it doesn't recognize the cruelty and the, the aggression and the violence embedded in nature and our own natures. So, you have in that opening scene this incredible violent scene, but the birds are singing away. It reminds me of descriptions of the First World War, when you had these fields being churned up by cannon fire, and then the cannons fall away, and the birds are singing. And people are in this kind of hell, torn and bloodied and broken bodies all around, and the birds are singing sweetly. So I'm sure that's you know that's in Hanukkah's mind when he has the bird song. And if you look at some of the other scenes, the way in which sound is used, not only the sound of human suffering and human pain, but the sound of nature around, like when uh, Ziggy comes back from being away in Italy uh, and they ascend the stairs to the the big house, the wind is blowing. This reminds me of something, uh, you know, again, we're reminded of of nature uh, and the natural world all around that's carrying on regardless of what the humans are, are up to. Uh, and and a final association here is a, is a famous observation of D.W. Griffiths who criticising the later cinema uh, after the, the silent era is that what he thought the cinema missed was the, the an image of the wind in the trees. And I th- think that's something at the back of Hanukkah's mind when you know, he has the wind shake the trees. Certainly Antonioni uses the, the wind in the trees and many other filmmakers use the wind in the trees as, as something beyond words, as something that only cinema can capture, that interaction between, you know, the movement and the, and the sound and the utter unknowability, our inability to, to really go beyond or get to grips with what, what that means. Mm-hmm. Yes, Hanukkah places these moments in, especially with the narrator. And the winter scene in particular stands out for that because we've already heard the symbolism of the white ribbon by this point. The pastor has explained to Martin and his daughter that they must wear the white ribbon to remind themselves of purity and innocence. And then this snow falls on the village. And the narrator gives us his speech at that point in the film. It's around the midpoint, of course, because it, it follows that trajectory of a a summer into winter and rising back up again. And there's 
the whole village is covered in white, and we've been told of the symbolism of white, and we know just how vastly that contrasts with everything that's actually going on in the village. Yeah, and we know how quickly snow can get dirty and slushy, and uh, uh, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you another thing about some of the the beautiful photography, particularly the landscapes. You know, there's a series of landscape shots without humans in it, but they are poignantly beautiful. And I think they relate to something that Hanukkah has said. I'm thinking of the, the beautiful landscape shots and what they might mean. They are devoid of of humans, but they are incredibly beautiful and they, they they create a kind of a yearning for that kind of beauty. And Hanukkah is very much he talks about beauty as something, you know, quite spiritual really that as soon as you try and grasp beauty it escapes through your fingers and that but it, it's connected to some uh, idea he has of uh, of the spiritual of what is you know essentially and profoundly important to humans and that connects with what he says although we live in a world without god although we live in the void although we live in the darkness although we're lost and although the world that we live in is also been corrupted by power and by the abuse of knowledge, there is still that trace, that memory trace, that utopian hope to live in a better world. And I think these shots of great beauty create in one that kind of yearning for that for that beautiful other world, that 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 place where where peace and beauty and joy are humans for the asking and not the one that we're seeing, the world of cruelty, of greed, of avarice, of the abuse of power and children and so on. It also provides, you know, a nice contrast and, and conflict with what we're, we're witnessing. Perhaps we'll just touch on a couple more of the themes and then we can finish up and I've got a couple of questions more about the material in, in the book. There's one more line of dialogue that I really enjoy that then comes into the themes of the story as well, which is when the tenant farmer is arguing with his son and he asks, how do you know they're responsible? And the son replies, how do you know they're innocent? And uh, the Baron as well, another great line of dialogue that I enjoy. He says, if we fail to find out the truth, the peace of our community will be gone, as if everything depends on finding out the truth of what happened to his son, Siggy. Whereas that is not the peace of the community at all. And that sense of who is right, who is wrong, is who is telling the truth, who is manipulating and lying, is constantly riding through this film. And that theme of what is the truth seems to be very apparent and perhaps also influence the decision to use black and white as opposed to color for this. It's not just because we expect pre-World War I to be in black and white. There is also a symbolism inherent in black and white of it shows us vast contrasts between, again, the white of purity and the, the blackness and, and chaos as, as they're often considered uh, symbolically as well. To what extent do you think that is a major theme in the work is the question of what is true and what is false. I think it, it, is, it is one of the guiding themes for, for Hanukkah, I think, is the pursuit of truth. What, what is true? I mean, he says, 
Hollywood movies are lies. To the centre of his being, he thinks he's making films that are, that are more truthful about violence, the effects of violence, about the corruption of, of a consumer society, a pleasure-seeking, individualistic society. He, he thinks that he's making more truthful films and he thinks his films are seeking the truth in a way that, that mainstream cinema often isn't. They're just about big bangs and spectacle and, and fun and then you forget about it you know, almost immediately. So I think it is important for him to get, but the truth is difficult to get to. You know, we, we live in a world where we acknowledge multiple perspectives, where, you know, many of us are relativists, you know, who will say to each other, oh, well, you know, that's just your opinion. Oh, that's just, uh, you know, there, there is another line of thought, though, philosophically about truth, that the truth is about sincerity and it's about accuracy. Mm-hmm. And, and you can get to the truth. It takes time and it takes an effort of the will. And it takes goodwill to get to it, but you can get there. So I don't think he lives in a relativistic world, but he lives in a world where the truth is complex and contradictory and hard to get to. And I think the truth that the Baron is not acknowledging is the deeper truth about the life in the village, which is the way in which the men abuse their power, abuse their position. And, and are completely unaware of the consequences of the way they're behaving uh, and how that's creating an undercurrent and subtext of terrible violence mm-hmm. that, you know, the film suggests maybe underpins the First World War. Now, you can believe or subscribe to that idea or not, but certainly within the world of the film, the way these men are behaving uh, and repressing all human feeling uh, in order to be in charge is definitely something that, that Haneke is critiquing and pressing us as observers to, to see what the truth is. Mm-hmm. So sincerity is the part that is obviously missing with the pastor. When, when the teacher confronts the pastor, he continues to maintain that shield to protect the abusers. He threatens to denounce the teacher instead. And the scenes we do see behind doors, the argument between the Baron and the Baroness when she declares that she's going to leave him, when we find out that the doctor has been abusing his own daughter, all of this is the sincerity that is actually missing from that society because none of these people, the pastor, the doctor, the Baron, would ever reveal to the rest of the community their actual motivations, what they actually do behind closed doors the way they actually treat the people in their own household. So all of that is what's missing. What is, I suppose, essential with this type of film, with this type of writing, is to give the audience just enough space to linger on a moment. As you mentioned about, and the more Hollywood approach to filmmaking is we often don't get those moments where we get to linger. I'd say maybe a director like Terrence Malick is, is an alternative to that, and he does give us time to think within his films. And it's it's a transformative experience in a in a cinema with a big screen and nothing but darkness around you and you're forced to focus on a moment and consider what you've just seen. That is precisely what's written into the White Ribbon. Enough time to just think and get closer to that accuracy, to get closer to that truth. Yes, Heineke, I, I, I think he wants you to be unsettled. He wants you to think. He wants you to reflect. Um, in some of his films, you know, he 
one of his techniques was to, to fade to black and to use black spacing for a few seconds between you know episodes and scenes precisely for that reason for you to, to reflect. And you know it's in that sense there's a kind of Brechtian thread that runs through Hanukkah's film style that he is not wanting you to be over-identified with the characters and to be entranced in an Aristotelian sense, to be fully engaged and lost in the drama. He wants you to be at one remove and to be witnessing and to be aware that this is a construct and that there are other possibilities, there are other stories, there are other ways of interpreting what's going on. And you touch on sincerity, then absolutely, you know, another key theme for him in many of his films is the hypocrisy of middle class life. And whether that middle class life is contemporary or in a 19th century or a 20th century German village, it's the same critique that's implied that people are not facing up to and, and not acknowledging what the truth is and what the true situation is. So I'm going to put a link to your book in the episode description for the podcast, and I have to recommend it so highly. I think it is probably the best book on screenwriting I've read. And it's an approach to writing, which I feel is coming from a passion for what cinema is about, as opposed to offering a structural guide you must do this on this page. You must include this in your screenplay. It's an invitation to actually engage intellectually and then figure out what your voice is, figure out what you want to make, and then experiment, work it out in reference to what we've just been talking about with Hanukkah to, to get closer to that truth through being more accurate by thinking carefully through exactly what you're trying to do and then put that down on the page. So in all honesty, I do think it's one of the best books I've read. So there's just a couple of concepts within the book that I'd like just for your thoughts. Could I just pick up, yeah. though, on what you were saying about, about getting to the truth of the matter? I mean, I think absolutely, you know, this is why another tricksy title for screenwriting could be screenwriting is rewriting. And the rewriting is about precisely that. It's trying not only to get to the the best, most compelling shape that will catch, intrigue, and engage an audience for your screenplay. But it, it's also uh, discovering what it is you really want to say, what it's really about, because it might be about a number of things. And in fact, one of your drafts might be simply dropping a couple of the themes that you already were following that were getting in the way. And for that, you do need other people you know, who are outside you, who are observers, just like the audience in a Hanukkah film who can look at what you're doing and, and just like you know Hanukkah would like you to do and, and like he provokes, ask questions. And the questions themselves should provoke deeper thinking about what it is you're trying to say and what this is really about, not just what you think it's about. And on another level, I think you can get something from a book by way of understanding dramatic principles and, and, and something of the conventions and what the craft skills are so that you not only are doing the right thing, the right thing being you know, what seems to be the right thing here and now to be doing in the screenplay, but you understand why it might be the right thing. 
to do. And it just makes you more confident. It just makes you better in the room. It makes you better able to have an exchange with other screenwriters and with other filmmakers because you will, if it's going to go anywhere, because it is a dream of a film, will go out of your room. You will be involved with other people. So having a vocabulary and having a language, an intelligent language, a context to talk about your work will make you a more interesting, more intelligent and more articulate screenwriter who's able to push back and to be able to answer the questions that are coming at you that you can then take back to the screenplay that you're working on with other people. What I've found so useful myself in my own writing, getting feedback can offer so many different benefits. Sometimes it can be noticing things that I wasn't aware of. Sometimes it's pointing out things that I'm very much aware are still there and figuring out how to problem solve that. Another thing that has been really useful in getting feedback is just encouragement. It's retelling a story that you've already written down gives you a new perspective on it. Again, articulating it. It's getting closer to what is this story meant to be and have I achieved that? And if I need to re-explain what I'm trying to do with it, why is that not present in the draft? It's figuring out how to get that in there so it doesn't need context and it doesn't need to be explained that it's present on the page. I have a writer's group and I have a small network of other screenwriter friends who are based in different parts of the United States who I can reach out to for advice. And I would say it's, it's very easy for people to feel tense or scared about sharing something they've worked on so hard because they're afraid of criticism. But without it, it's impossible to grow. I feel it's really, really necessary. So I'm glad you you brought that up because it's it's something I, I hope that someone out there is kind of mulling over, wondering, oh, I'm not really confident enough to do it. it it's really not that bad. It's it's uh, it's actually a great experience to reach out and get yeah, get some it's, feedback. It's a joy, you know, in art as in life, to to meet people who help you flourish. That's why we're here in any good relationship. To give that person the space to become, you know, in, in American <laughs> language, you know, the best person they can mm -hmm. be. But absolutely. Jung would call it the individuated self, which is uh, another nice way of putting it, I think. Yeah. Yes. Just in terms of screenwriting tips or advice, your book is essentially a look back on quite a long career and you're compiling so much of lessons that are, I would imagine were hard learned over a lot of work screenwriting as a process of discovery rather than following structure could you just expand on that concept of screenwriting as discovery you you relate it to play in the book as well it's is close links to imagination and play as a child yeah i think the the immediately in relation to the to structure uh, you know of course most professional writers will plan their work but not everyone and some will plan in different ways, and not every time. You know, some uh, may just begin with an image and an idea and work forwards and backwards and find the structure that way. Uh, most, though, will work with character and also write outside of any possible structure that you might have in mind. So, um, you know, spend some time with your character at school or, uh, you know, down the pub or... You know, in, in some scenes where, you know, you are not planning to have in the script, but that mm -hmm. way, you know, finding out who your characters are and, and allowing the characters to determine where you're going. Uh, you, you, 
you know, you yourself, and this gets back to some of the conversation we've had, if you're over-determined, you know, if you're over-structured, if you bear down like an authoritarian father on your child, your creative self, they're not going to flourish. They're going to violently blow back on you. So I think the chapter, particularly on creativity, is precisely about ways in which you can uh, liberate, you know, your creative self to find out what it is you want to write without feeling you have to keep confining it into some standard structure. We're all aware of basic structures like beginnings, middles and ends, and we're kind of working to that in the back. You know, By all means, when you look at that sprawling first draft, bring to bear the structural paradigms that you've read about in the skewniting books and see what clue they can give you as to why it's a bit slow here and why it gets lost there and so on. But to try and pour your thoughts and yourself into a preset is is not the way to get the most creative self to flourish in your work. One way I've heard that point that you just mentioned put as well is if you don't know what happens to your characters in between scenes, who does? It's a responsibility of the writer to, even if those scenes are not included, to at least be conscious of the fact that everything in the story needs to be linked. If if you have a character in in one setting, something has happened to them, and next thing we see of them is later on, what has happened to them in, in that space between the scene? The audience will infer it, they'll pick up, but you have a responsibility there of just being aware of where you're taking the characters and not letting them drift off in those gaps and spaces between the scenes. Absolutely. But you also have a responsibility to, you know, just like with other people, you know, whether it's your children or your wife or your partner, to allow them a space of mystery, you know, a place where you don't know. And it's in that space, you know, what Keats called negative capability, not knowing, which also resonates with Annika, that you will find interesting and fresh and exciting stuff. And this is questions rather than answers. Answers close everything down kill curiosity. If you already know what the formula is, if you already know your character inside out, they won't surprise you. So you have to find that balance between security and risk, between having some sense of structure, but also having a space in which to to overthrow that structure with a new structure. That's what discovery is. You also mentioned the relationship between hard work and inspiration, which Again, I've met many writers who get bogged down because they feel that they're not inspired one day. So how could they possibly write? There is a very long learning process. It's not something that can just be given as advice. It's something that I feel, at least at, at this stage in my own writing, I feel that it's something you have to learn for yourself as you go through it. But one way you put it that I thought was particularly clear is that Every story and screenplay has its own particular challenges and unexpected problems. So this isn't a formulaic process of constantly churning out screenplay after screenplay. Each one has inherently in that story something that you as a writer will have to learn and confront and problem solve. And then eventually you'll get to the place where it's ready and it's something that you're happy to have written. Absolutely. I think the the hard work is maybe the example would be better. I mean, you know, professional skin writers that I know, you know, they they treat it like a job of work. They go to work. 
they have a place where they work best and, and they get up and they go there and nine o'clock they're on it. And even if they only write two sentences, you know, they're going to stay there till two or three. I like that nine to kind of two or three and have a late lunch and then I can do what I want afterwards. You're also figuring out not only a method of how you're going to approach your work, but how long you're going to spend on it and, and what, you know, what works for you, what whether you're a morning person or an evening person and so on. But definitely regularity, a bit of discipline, that will give you the background and context out of which you know inspiration may appear. Mm-hmm. Uh, every now and again, you will be inspired, but usually because you've put the work in. If you sit around waiting for great ideas, you know that's that's a recipe that you know, you're an amateur, really. Yeah, and I think it's easy to become mathematical and statistical about this stuff and think, well, this day I wrote a thousand words, so that day in which I wrote fifty words isn't as good. It's something I should that I should feel bad about. However, at least what I have found through my own writing process is that an evening spent working on a problem with only 50 words actually written on the page is still work because that process of going through and figuring out, firstly articulating what the problem was in the first place, and then figuring out all of the possible solutions, then deciding on a course of action, is a tremendous amount of work, just as valuable as writing an entire scene with all the action lines and all of the dialogue placed there on the page. It's a necessary part and shouldn't be considered something that is not equivalent to writing your three pages or five pages or whatever your goal is. There's such a longer time frame for writing a, a feature screenplay, at least. It, it's something that one should be prepared to spend months so. on. And, and, you know, God is in the detail if God is still around at all after all this talk of mm. empty churches and secularization and the void. The detail being really a microcosm of the macrocosm. You're doing the same work in in that that level as you are, you know, on the larger scale. I do a bit of Tai Chi and a couple of nights ago, instead of going through a whole form, uh, a whole set of movements that, that, that flow one into the other, we just spent the whole evening looking at certain hand movements in relation to the movement of the body and the legs. And we repeated it constantly for 10 times each time. And then we switched from the left to the right and to the right to the left and repeated them again. And it was deeply, deeply satisfying. It was a different experience from been able to to go from one form and flow into another and really feel that you were moving around the room and just like you you see people in China working out their Tai Chi. But it was just as interesting and just as creative and just as useful to be simply working on a hand movement, a simple movement. And that filled up the whole evening. And why not? I suppose the, the last thing for us to talk about is screenwriting is filmmaking I'd say the major theme within the book is understanding cinematic language, understanding being an editor, being a director, how all of these things can relate to being a writer, looking at the different techniques and the different roles which exist in filmmaking in order to make yourself a better writer. So would you be able to share a few thoughts on what someone might want to study and understand in this sense of screenwriting is filmmaking? What parts of filmmaking should they be thinking about? Well, you should be reading screenplays. 
reading screenplays more than reading books about screenplays. You should be looking at films, lots of films. You should get some sense of cinema history and how the, the language of, of cinema evolved. Uh, have a look at screenplays for films that you love and films that you're looking at. See if you can get a hold of earlier drafts and see how the, the script evolved. So that's absolutely one thing. The other thing that I mentioned a number of times in the book really is also, it is a, a group thing. You know, if you want to, to be an art writer in the garret, then write a novel. Screenwriting is filmmaking in the sense that the screenplay aspires to disappear, aspires to be a film. And if it's any good, you know, it might become a film. So you should get yourself involved with other people who are making films. It's like if you've never ridden a bicycle before and you and you were having to write, you know, just simply riding the bicycle, you will have an experience, an understanding, a, a mind-body experience that you could take back to writing about riding a bicycle, as it were. So to get a job in a crew, you know, making short films, to get into the cutting room. There is a, a kind of cliche about filmmaking where the, the film's made three times, once on the page and the second time when the director brings in the actors and they see how this look takes away the two pages of dialogue. You don't need that. And a setting that the director's chosen that the writer wasn't aware of that, that carries atmosphere and meaning and, and changes things too. Uh, and the third time in the cutting room, when the editor sees you could drop this scene or move this scene from here to here, you know, you as a screenwriter are also a director, you're also an actor. Uh, you know, you can talk in funny voices in, in the quiet of your own room. You're an editor, you're moving things around. So the, but the more you understand about how film is shaped in that way by these different roles, the more you can take that back into the work that you're doing. And by the way, uh, another useful thing you can do in relation to it being, you're also writing for performance. So if you know a couple of actors or people who are you know, uh, training to be actors or even just friends, or if you've got no friends, you know, that's kind of sad, but you, know, you can always activate the automatic uh, voices on your, <laughs> although I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, but actually getting a couple of people to read your screenplay, you will hear things that you will not necessarily pick up when you're reading it mm -hmm. because the screenplay is written to be performed. It's written to be heard out loud. Uh, and that's another useful way of getting feedback on, on your developing work. But definitely find people to get involved with who are making films and, and, and help make these films and you become a better screenwriter for that. Brilliant. Well, Brian, thank you so much for, for joining me today on this uh, wintry day in London. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again for listening. If you've made it this far, I hope you really enjoyed the episode. There's going to be more great guests coming up on the next couple of episodes, so do stay posted and make sure you're subscribed to make sure you get the latest episodes when they get released. And if you're looking for something to do in the meantime and you're looking for another deep discussion of films... Don't forget that there's been some wonderful people on. Scroll back down through the episode list. Take a look. I highly recommend the episode we recorded with Stuart Voitella on the film Gladiator. Epicy Latumbe discussing Crash with me. Tommy Savoya talking about The Hobbit. 
Robert Edgar from York St. John University discussing No Country for Old Men, and my first interview with a filmmaker, Mark Herman, discussing the process of adapting The Boy in the Striped Pajamas for screen. So that should give you plenty to enjoy in the meantime, and there'll be a new episode out very shortly. Thanks again. Goodbye.